This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big subject shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. Geopolitics is always changing. You can look at nations like Germany and France, who have battled each other for centuries. But today, they're incredibly close economic and cultural partners. You can look at nations like Spain and Portugal, and these days, there's barely a border between the two. But sometimes, geopolitics stays the same. Sometimes, the geopolitical situation is just baked into the cake. Tensions can last thousands of years. And the example we're talking about today is the tensions between the Anatolian plain and the people inhabiting the west coast of the Aegean Sea. Whether it was the Persians and the Greeks, or the Ottomans and the Greeks, or the Turks and the Greeks, this area has been a likely cauldron of tension for almost a millennia. And although the conflict is much calmer these days, where it plays out most obviously isn't on the border between Greece and Turkey, but 850 kilometers to the south, across the Mediterranean island of Cyprus. The island smack bang in the middle of Turkey, Greece, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, and Egypt, and is home to a stagnant 60-year conflict. As it stands today, the island is divided in three, between the Greek-aligned Republic of Cyprus, the Turkish-aligned Northern Cyprus, and a British buffer state that roughly carves the island in two, right along the old ceasefire line. There are towns, families, roads, and communities cut in two by this divide. And with the divide now being so stagnant, both communities are digging in for the long run. One side calls for the island to become two separate nations on divergent paths, like we see in the current Korean peninsula. And the other calls for the rejoining of the two parts, like we saw with Germany at the end of the Cold War. This decision, though, isn't being made on the island itself. The battle is being duked out by the Turkish and the Greeks, by the EU and the British, by the German bankers and the Russian criminal money launderers, by the Israeli gas companies and by the UK naval commanders. Who will end up winning this, though, is still hotly up for debate. And to talk more about that, we turn to our first guest. Part 1. Rock in the Storm Yes, uh, Cyprus is the third largest and third most populous island in the Mediterranean. And at the crossroads of three continents, Europe, Africa, and Asia. And Cyprus was once the wealthiest nation in the world during the Copper and Bronze Ages due to its rich natural copper resources. And I add also that uh, it has the world's oldest wine level. Madalena Vicari is a geopolitics and geoeconomics writer for Vocal Europe, specializing in Cyprus and the Eastern Mediterranean. She joins us today. Cyprus was under Ottoman rule between uh, 1571 and 1878, and it entered the British Empire under rather unusual circumstances, uh, if we can say so. Uh, during the Russia-Turkish War of 1877, uh, 1878, the British intervened in the crisis on the side of the Ottoman Turks by sending a fleet to intimidate the Russians. The Ottoman Sultan was so thankful for the British intervention that he granted the control of the island of Cyprus to the British under the Cyprus Convention. Uh, in parallel with this, with this state of affairs, Cyprus is a colony of British crown, there were starting to emerge the Greek Cypriot and Turkish Cypriot nationalist ideologies. In Osis, the union of Cyprus with Greece, uh, which was favored by the Greek Cypriot, and Taksim, the partition of Cyprus, favored by the Turkish Cypriot. Uh, the rising nationalism further contributed to the gradual segregation of the two communities, leading to a decline in the number of mixed villages population already by 1931. Uh, by uh, 1940s, the segregated organization, rural, cultural, political, uh, social organizations and associations had become the norm. And only um, 100, uh, 114 mixed population centers were left by 1960. For a bit of context here, the British were looking to hand Cyprus back to the Cypriots. But the Greek-aligned Cypriots in the West and the Turkish-aligned Cypriots in the East couldn't agree on what should be done about the future of the island. 
whether to join the island together as one nation under the majority Greek Cypriot population, or to separate the island into two states, the Republic of Cyprus in the southwest, aligned with the Greeks, and the Republic of Northern Cyprus, aligned with the Turkish. This issue, though, boiled over with the Turkish invasion of Cyprus in 1974. Can you take us through this issue? I understand what happened. Let's uh, get a bit to the Constitution, because it was the Constitution which proved to be the catalyst somehow, I mean, to be one of the main catalysts for intercommunal violence. Uh, because its provisions uh, uh, were made, made its application very difficult and complex. Just a short example. The president was elected by the Greek Cypriot and the vice president by the Turkish Cypriot communities. Each had a veto on decisions relating to foreign affairs, defense and security in the Council of Ministers. Uh, council was composed of seven Greek and seven Greeks and three Turkish Cypriot members. Uh, there were uh, there was House of Representatives uh, where uh, Greek Cypriots had 35 members, Turkish Cypriots 15 members. They were elected on separate communal electoral rolls. Um, legislation was by simple majority, but laws and decision on elections had to be approved approved by each community group. So it was it, its application was extremely difficult. So to fix the problems in the constitution and its shake implementation, uh, President Makarios, the president of Cyprus, proposed 13 points on November uh, 30, uh, 1963, which would have reduced or eliminated the Turkish Cypriot vetoes and quotas. The proposal exacerbated the violent political crisis already in place. The constitutional order broke down and Turkish Cypriots withdrew from, from or were scared out of government and never returned to, to, to the government. Uh, violence erupted on 21st December 1963, when a number of Turkish Cypriots uh, were killed by Greek Cypriots. Uh, but also to the other sides, uh, there were killings. Uh, following the violence, the three guarantor powers, uh, Greece, uh, Turkey, and Great Britain, demanded a ceasefire. In addition, the international community pressed for a stationing of peacekeeping mission on the island. Um, on December 30, 1963, a ceasefire contract known as the Green Line Agreement was signed and the old town of Nicosia was divided into a Turkish and Greek sector. Uh, between 1965 and 1966, uh, Cyprus experienced a period of unstable peace, if we uh, can say so, with the uh, intercommunal negotiations slowly progressing. Uh, but Turkish Cypriots continued to operate their own administration outside the internationally recognized government of Cyprus. They were already segregated. The two communities were completely divided, actually. Um, following a UN resolution on March 4, 1964, a United Nations peacekeeping force was established. Uh, that uh, peacekeeping force prevented large-scale bloodshed, but it left the territorial situation frozen, with uh, Cyprus being dotted with Turkish-controlled enclave, enclaves that formed the core of a territorial-based entity, small, small as it were, but separate. So, um, in 1966, the Turkish Cypriots declared this entity that they were already controlling, formed by their enclaves, as the Turkish Federated State of Cyprus. And this represented a step towards partition. Um, and the uh, United Nations peacekeeping force did not have the authority to, uh, or the means to oppose this further encroachment towards partition. There were... Um, some intercommunal talks sponsored by UN between 1968 and 1960, 1974, but the tensions persisted. This led to the conflict. On 15 July 1974, a coup against the President Makarios was engineered by the extremist supporters in Cyprus. 
the supporters of the military junta in Greece, which had came had came to power in 1967. Um, President Makarios managed to flee the country with the help of British forces. He first went to London and soon after to New York. Nico Samson, a former EOTA member and strong supporter of Enosis, was established as the new president of the Republic of Cyprus. As his administration was reinforced by Athens, Ankara was sure that the reunion of the island with Greece was about to happen. And following the coup, Turkish Prime Minister Ecevit was clearly determined to take action over Cyprus, uh, in a way or another. Firstly, uh, he tried the diplomatic uh, path, keeping within the terms of the Treaty of Gorenki, he first tried to have the United Kingdom joined Turkey in restoring the state of affairs established by the um, 1960 constitution. Uh, to this end, on 17 and 18 July, he had meetings in London with the British officials, but the meetings did not conclude in an agreement. And for Ankara, Cyprus was not to become a Hellenic island dominating Turkey's southern coast, um, nor were the Turkish Cypriots to be left without access to the north coast of, of the island. Uh, also, Echevita realized the importance of Turkey's NATO, um, of Turkey's NATO role in the Eastern Mediterranean and Turkey's great increase in strength since 1964. So um, the opportunity was too good to be missed. The Turkish, fearing that Cyprus would fall under Hellenic control, launched Operation Attila in 1974, dropping paratroopers and landing forces across the east coast of Cyprus, hoping to protect the Turkish areas of the island. There was fighting and crimes committed on both sides, but at the end of the fighting, the island was divided into three parts. The southwestern 60% of the island was run by the Republic of Cyprus and closely aligned themselves with Greece. The northeastern 40% of the country would become the de facto state of northern Cyprus. And to this day, northern Cyprus is only recognized by the Republic of Turkey. And between the two formed a thin corridor right down the middle, and this would be the permanent UK buffer zone, occupied by the British, to keep the two sides from fighting. The buffer zone is very thin in places, but it separates the Turkish side from the Cypriot side. The island tried to reverse this partition in 2004 with a referendum, but that referendum failed and the people voted against it. So the island remains divided into three parts to this day. Why did that referendum fail? Do people like living in this broken apart island? I'd say that uh, the overwhelming no uh, in the Greek uh, Cypriot community was triggered by a series of structural and conjunctural factors, both ideological and material. Um, it was a combination of political ontology and specific goals. Um, in the Greek Cypriot community, there was uh, an explosive mixture of ideological positions and politics of memory at work. Um, a need for confirming nationalists and sustaining the trauma of conflict that shaped the, the, the answer. And at the same time, there were also more cynical calculations of play uh, that I, uh, I would elaborate on. So let's start with the first uh, uh, ideological structure, which was the widespread belief in the imminent Greekness of Cyprus, and thus the belief in a um, privilege of Greek Cypriots living in, in, uh, in the country. Uh, this belief formed the core of the Cyprus dispute and defined every moment in its development throughout uh, the period of 1960 to 1974. The idea was that even if Cyprus is not entirely Greek, it is perceived in majority as quintessentially and therefore effective the second, um, the second um, factor also um, of ideological um, essence was the perception of the enemy as a, and the sense of threat. The demonization of Turkey was and still it is the key aspect of Greek Cypriot political consciousness and even of uh, the collective ethos, I, 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 in a way. 
in the dominant Greek, Greek Cypriot narrative, the concept of Turkish expansionism is central, regardless of the ideological framework wherein it is obsessed. And it is widespread believed, uh, if not unanimously believed, but at least widespread believed um, that Turkish expansionism forms the crux of the Cyprus dispute. Thus, the no campaign drew forth a conceptualization of uh, 1974 as the year, as the momentum when Turkey asserted control over 40% uh, of Cyprus, uh, promoting the idea that um, Turkey, by uh, by way of the Anand plan, would succeed in controlling the entire country through joint management of the federal state together with the Turkish Cypriot community. In 2003, it became clear that Cyprus dispute result or not result, the accession to the EU was inevitable. This realization turned uh, the EU accession from a positive into a negative factor, pushing the Greek Cypriot leadership and by extension the community away from reunification. Um, while the planning and rationale behind the accession uh, to the EU throughout the previous decade was originally meant to be a catalyst for the resolution of the Cyprus dispute. Um, in the referendum, the approach was completely reversed. The rhetorical question, rhetorical question, why should they force us to accept the solution now that we are about to join the EU, was a mainstay in the no campaign. The argument was that accession to the EU would shift power correlations and the Greek Cypriot community could therefore achieve a more favorable solution in the coming years under the new circumstances. Put it, uh, put it, put it differently, uh, accession uh, to the EU membership was seen in the end as a means to fortify the diplomatic position of the Greek Cypriot, vis-a-vis -vis both Turkish Cypriot and Turkey, which was uh, at the time a candidate uh, for EU membership. And do you see any solution to this problem going forward? I think that the divides are getting wider by the day. And the Greek and Turkish Cypriots might well be on the path to miss the last opportunity for reconciliation. As uh, after the current ruling generation, who knew the United Island, there will be even less appetite for compromises towards a solution. So the island remains divided in three. The tensions don't just come from the island itself. In many ways, the island acts as a proxy between Greece and Turkey, who are on paper allies together as a part of NATO, but in reality are competing for control over the Aegean and Eastern Mediterranean, with Cyprus at the heart of that dispute. But to talk more about that, we turn to our second guest. Part 2. The Dotted Line Cyprus is located in the heart of the Eastern Mediterranean, a very important uh, region geostrategically, geopolitically. And um, at this stage, the major dimension of the Cyprus problem is the fact that uh, Turkey wants to have strategic control over this island. Andreas Theofanos is the head of politics and governance at the University of Nicosia. He is also the president of the Cyprus Centre for European and International Affairs, and the author of The Intercommunication Negotiations After 1974 and Its Future Prospects about the Cyprus Conflict. He joins us today. Economic-wise, the government-controlled area is um, doing much better, obviously, than the occupied north. The economy of the occupied north depends, basically, you know, it is its budget more than, you know, almost 40% comes from Turkey. Turkey controls the infrastructure. The currency used in the occupied north is the Turkish lira. The currency used in the government-controlled area is the euro. Um, so, economic-wise, there are several issues. And also, let me share with you the following, that over time, when there were efforts towards uh, uh, negotiations um, to address the Cyprus question, the authorities, you know, in the in the occupation regime, 
have always denied access to the IMF and the European Union to control, to monitor banking and other form of activities. And of course, it's an abnormal situation. So between the Republic of Cyprus and Northern Cyprus is the UK-controlled buffer zone. Why is the UK so invested in the island to keep UK troops there holding the two sides apart? And how are the UK soldiers there seen by the locals? I tell you, I mean, this is a, a very complicated issue. Um, I would say the following. The basis, according to the treaties of 1960, with which the Republic of Cyprus was established, the basis of sovereignty. At the same time, by the same agreements, Britain has obligations towards Cyprus. I mean, as a guarantor power, it has the responsibility to protect the constitutional order and the territorial integrity of the island. It failed to take action in 1974 when Turkey invaded. I mean, Britain as a guarantor power watched. It didn't do anything. Um, one of my suggestions in my policy papers in relation to this issue is that um, I think Cypriot governments should have asked both Greece and Britain to live up to the um, to their obligations of the 1960 agreement. Uh, this has not been done. I mean, like openly, I'm sure that these issues were touched, but Cyprus facing the Turkish occupation, Cypriot authorities never wanted to call the spade a spade in the sense that, uh, you know, it is essential to say that uh, the basis in Cyprus also, I mean, I mean, Britain uses the basis. It has strategic interests. It has benefits. But at the same time, it has obligations that they were not fulfilled to the present day. With so much influence in the country from the UK and the EU and Turkey, how much control does Cyprus really have over its own foreign policy? I want to be very specific. It, it follows a very pragmatic policy. Um, we try to be in line with the principles and the objectives of the European Union as a whole. At the same time, historically, Cyprus had relations with the, you know, United States and Russia and so on, and it tries to balance uh, conflicting interests. It tries to do its best, and I think one of the thing, one of the issues that I would put forward in relation to the foreign policy of Cyprus is that it is characterized by pragmatism and not ideology. I mean, of course, our society is not monolithic. Uh, I mean, there are some some political forces which would say that. The, Cyprus should follow a more pro-Western, I mean, like more in line with the EU and the United States. There are other political forces which say that certainly, I mean, with EU, uh, we are following uh, the principles and the objectives of the European Union. But at the same time, it's important to balance out the interests of the major powers, United States and Russia. I would say that in the last few years that there has been a tilt uh, towards um, uh, to following closer ties with the United States without abandoning the relations with Russia. Uh, and also we must see the region. Cyprus in the last 20, 30, 20 25 years, it has, it has drastically improved relations with Israel. And at the same time, it tried to maintain relations with moderate Arab states. I mean, uh, we are in the heart of the Eastern Mediterranean and adjacent to the Middle East. So it's, it's, it's a, a very delicate uh, geographical location where there are regional and international interests sometimes conflicting. And Cyprus tries to pursue pragmatic uh, policy, regional and international, and it's, and it's trying to be an asset uh, to the region, to the European Union and the international community. With the current tensions between the Greeks and the Turks at the moment, do you think that conflict is likely to spill over into Cyprus? Well, it's a very important question. Let me put it this way. The Cyprus question, it has several dimensions. Let me state a few of them. It, it, there is a bicommunal dimension, a European dimension, an international dimension. But certainly there is also a Greco-Turkish Greco dimension. The Turkish view is that it sees um, the issue of Cyprus as part of the Greco-Turkish agenda, 
Greece has been trying for its own purposes since 74 to, disasso- to dissociate the two. Uh, I do not think that they, this can be completely dissociated, although, although from a legal perspective, one could say it's a separate issue on its own. Um, in actual fact, um, Cyprus question is part of the broader Greco-Turkish agenda. Consequently, tensions in the Aegean cannot leave Cyprus unaffected and vice versa. Greece and Turkey and their predecessors have been at odds with each other for a millennia now, fighting over the tightly packed Aegean Sea, the crucial Bosphorus Strait, and the very gateway to Europe itself. But things are a bit more complicated these days, with both Greece and Turkey being a part of NATO with mutual defence treaties, and Cyprus being a part of the EU, a huge trading partner for Turkey. Many people would suggest the war between them is foolish and it should be relegated to the annals of history. But others would look at the shifting lines on the maps and the newfound hubris in the Aegean Sea and merely chalk it up to business as usual between these very tense neighbours. So why now? Why is the East Med flaring back up? Well, for that, we turn to our third guest. Part 3. From Inside the House So Cyprus is an island of contention uh, among religions and among cultures, uh, east and west, uh, north and south. So, you know, Cyprus was a a cradle of Christianity, St. Barnabas, uh, who was a guide of St. Paul, uh, was from Cyprus, founded the Cypriot Church. Uh, and Cyprus was very important uh, as, a, a, again, a destination of St. Paul on his uh, multitudinous travels uh, and historically had a largely Greek culture. However, in the 16th century, uh, Suleiman the Magnificent, the great Turkish leader, was able to uh, capture Cyprus for the Turkish side. And from then on, there's been great tension between Greek Cypriots who think that Cyprus is fundamentally Greek or Hellenic and Turkish Cypriots and Turks who believe the Turkish minority has never been fully respected. And so that that sort of fundamental uh, difference has never been resolved. The parties have been very close a couple of times. Um, and at this point, I, I see Cyprus as remaining uh, contentious field, a political battlefield, if you will, because now that the Greek Cypriots are members of the European Union, they feel they've got all the negotiating leverage on their side, and the Turkish Cypriots on the outside uh, feel constantly like victims. So I think the island is destined for a two-state solution. Matthew Breiser is the former U.S. ambassador and the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Europe and Eurasia. He's also a non-resident senior fellow for the Atlantic Council, specializing in the Mediterranean states. He joins us today. I think it would take a while because now the the narrative, the conventional narrative, especially inside the EU, where the the concept of solidarity among all the member states is paramount. Uh, So inside the EU, the view that's taken is essentially the the, uh, Greek Cypriot one, uh, which is that the Turkish Cypriots or the Turkish Cypriot political entity is illegitimate, uh, is a breakaway state, and only exists because Turkey invaded the island in 1974. I think the facts are way more complicated, however, than that. And over time, you could see a shift in the international community's view uh, about the so-called TRNC, or Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus. It'll take a while to work through the history and to change the narrative. Uh, Turkey's trying to do that by explaining from its perspective that for decades, in good faith, it tried to negotiate a lasting settlement of the so-called Cyprus question. Um, Turkish Cypriots, as, as your viewers have, have heard, uh, agreed to a referendum in 2004 on the so-called Anand plan. They, they, they agreed to it. The Greek Cypriot side did not agree. And so uh, that has led the Turkish Cypriot side to believe, hey, we, we've done all that we can. Um, we deferred any sort of oil and gas exploration until long after the Greek Cypriots began. So the Greek Cypriots first began licensing oil and gas blocks uh, offshore Cyprus back in about 2004. 
And that was, from the Turkish perspective, a violation of all the agreements that set up the, the Republic of Cyprus back in, in 1960. But the Turks sort of bit their tongue all that time until recently, until in 2017, the, the last round of active UN efforts to broker a settlement collapsed in the so-called Grand Montan uh, summit. Uh, and after that point, it was clear to me the Turkish side decided, Turkish Cypriot side is going to go for a two-state solution uh, and that Turkey will uh, begin uh, looking for oil and gas. In the same way, the Greek Cypriots have welcomed in American, Israeli, French, Korean, all kinds of companies uh, in the uh, exclusive economic zone claimed by the Greek Cypriots. So um, I think for now, all these actions by the Turkish side are portrayed as being provocative. So there's, there's zero chance in the near term that a two-state solution will be embraced by the international community. But uh, depending upon how restrained the Turkish side is and how reasonable they, they can be in, in making their their uh, case for their interpretation of history and the legalities uh, of, of the island, uh, they have a chance over time to get some other states uh, to recognize the, the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus. One of the major drivers of this story is the tensions between Turkey and Greece, with one of the big ratcheting factors here is the claims Athens now has over its territorial waters, with Athens looking to push for the full 22 kilometers of exclusive economic zone in the Aegean Sea. This would turn thousands of these tiny little Greek islands into huge sovereign areas, and by effect turning the Aegean Sea into a Greek lake, with Turkey having to pass through Greek territorial waters to reach the Mediterranean every time. Can you take us through this situation and why Turkey is so against this? Yeah, there's been a strong dispute for decades between Greece and Turkey about maritime boundaries in both the Aegean Sea and then in the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, and uh, what the crux of the matter now is that, uh, and, and why there was such tension um, last summer, was that, as I said a few minutes ago, Turkey has decided that it, it, it really wasn't getting anything from its policy of restraint with regard to sticking with the UN-brokered Cyprus negotiations uh, and then not uh, challenging conventional wisdom and exploring for oil and gas in what it believes are its uh, exclusive economic zone waters. Um, and so... What Turkey is now arguing is that the, the exclusive economic zone claimed by Greece in the eastern Mediterranean, so in the waters near Cyprus and off of Turkey's southern coast of, of Anatolia, uh, that that exclusive economic zone is unfair uh, because it's way too big given the amount of continental coastline that Greek has, Greece has in the eastern Mediterranean. Uh, in other words, the, the, in, in normal international legal discussions, uh, a country is allowed uh, in a, to claim an exclusive economic zone that is exclusive. It means, you know, if in, for the example of oil and gas exploration, only it is allowed to explore in that zone. Uh, and it's 200 miles from, from, from the, uh, the coastline, the continental coastline. What the Greek side is arguing is, whoa, 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 we're also an island country, and our islands are really important to our culture. I mean, Crete is the cradle of, of not only Greek civilization, but many would argue European civilization. So our islands mean a lot to us, the Greeks say, and so we are entitled to an exclusive economic zone that, that's 200 miles out from our islands. And under the, uh, the UN Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, uh, it's, it is accepted that islands can have an exclusive economic zone of 200 miles. Um, but here's where it gets complicated. One, <laughs> Greece has a tiny island, about 10 square kilometers, that's located a few hundred kilometers from the Greek mainland, uh, called Kastelorizo uh, on the Greek side, or Mace in Turkish, um, that is lo located just off the coast of Turkey and very, very far east, as I said, of the other Greek islands and of the Greece continental mainland. So Turkey says it's completely unfair to allow a tiny island to give Greece another 200 miles of exclusive economic zone, which essentially cuts Turkey's exclusive economic zone into a small fraction, way smaller than Greece's. And Turkey says our continental coastline is the longest in the eastern Mediterranean. Why do we have one of the smallest EEZs under, under this formulation? It's simply not fair. The Greek side says, well, you know, too bad. Under the law of the sea, 
this is how we draw our boundaries. To which Turkey replies, well, we're not party to the law of the sea convention. By the way, neither is the United States. So we're not party to it. And if you look inside the law of the sea convention, uh, it says that inevitably there will be conflicts uh, regarding maritime boundaries and exclusive economic zones between neighboring countries. And in those situations, to, to paraphrase, those two neighboring countries need to come up with a mutually agreed and reasonable solution uh, based on each side's very important interests. And so Turkey's saying, let's do that. And Greece is saying, no way. Law of the seas says islands get a 200-mile EEZ, period. And then Turkey counters that, finally, by saying, well, in the Aegean Sea, where some of the islands, uh, the Greek islands, are only maybe six or ten kilometers uh, off the Turkish coast, uh, you have agreed in principle that those Greek islands, of course they don't get a 200-mile exclusive economic zone, because if they did, Turkey would have no exclusive economic zone at all in the Aegean. So Turkey says, you've set a precedent already, Greece, in the Aegean Sea to limit the exclusive economic zones of islands. So. Can, can we find a compromise so that you do the same in, in the Eastern Mediterranean? So they started having conversations about this in, in January of this year, resuming conversations for the first time in five years, uh, and those discussions have moved slowly. Uh, the bottom line is, I think Greece and Turkey want to find a compromise. Um, Germany, under the leadership of Chancellor Merkel, also want there to be a compromise. NATO <laughs> wants there to be a compromise between its two allies in the Eastern Mediterranean. The problem is that domestic politics in both countries uh, get, get fiery on these issues as the long-standing historical nationalistic views I talked about with regard to Cyprus going way back to the 16th century come into play. This whole conflict is vastly complicated by the fact that both Turkey and Greece are part of NATO. So in the unlikely event they do actually get into hostilities with each other, what is NATO's position here? It's a, it's unprecedented, um, but what has you know they, they did the two countries I mean Greece and Turkey did have an incident uh, last August or July or August where uh, two of their warships collided and this was while Turkey uh, had sent out uh, a seismic survey ship so this is a ship that uh, searches looks at the geology beneath the surface of the earth, so underwater, to try to figure out where there might be oil and gas deposits. Uh, and Turkey sent uh, military escorts, so naval ship escorts, with, with that ship that was uh, looking for possible oil and gas. Uh, and the Greeks responded, already had their own warships uh, in the area, uh, and there was a, a minor collision between the two. Um, no shots were fired, but there was really intense rhetoric and, you know, mutual threats about you better watch out or next time this could be uh, uh, more dangerous. And then NATO stepped in, as did Chancellor Merkel. So uh, under Secretary General Stoltenberg, NATO negotiated uh, talks between Greece and Turkey to deconflict uh, naval operations and avoid any military incidents uh, in, in the eastern Mediterranean between the two NATO allies. And then Chancellor Merkel convinced uh, Turkish President Erdogan to bring all those ships that had been looking for oil and gas with naval escort, bring them back into port keep them out of the Eastern Mediterranean in exchange for Greece then standing down its naval presence. And, and to this day, uh, the, Turkey has not returned uh, those uh, oil exploration ships and warships uh, to the Eastern Mediterranean. So what I'm trying to say is um, NATO, I think, will step in always way before there could be a conflict, a uh, shooting war uh, between Greece and Turkey. Uh, neither country wants that. Uh, I mean, especially Greece. You know, Tur Turkey has NATO's second largest military. Uh, if there were a, a, a real fight, it wouldn't be a fair fight. Uh, and NATO would not step in uh, under Article 5 to come to the assistance of either party because Article 5 uh, only envisions collective NATO security in case any member is attacked by a non-member of NATO. But it would be a mess. It would be a messy political military situation for NATO. <laughs> Counter to NATO, Russia is also heavily involved in Cyprus as well, having frequent meetings between the leaderships and Russian investment being huge in Cypriot banks. In fact, the estimate from a couple of years ago was that around $30 billion worth of Russian assets are laundered through Cypriot banks. With Russia being so involved in Cyprus and the Mediterranean base just over the sea in Syria, why are the Russians getting so involved in the Eastern Mediterranean? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've wondered a lot too. I've pondered a lot about the uh, uh, Russian military bases in Syria and why, why they're so involved. And I think they're, it, it's, it's all about uh, convincing 
countries in Russia's immediate neighborhood, that Russia remains a mighty military power that can project force from far away. As we know, Russia has launched some cruise missile attacks into Syria from the Caspian Sea. That's a powerful message to send to Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, and Iran, that you shouldn't mess with Russia militarily. Uh, additionally, being able to play a uh, a major role in the Syrian conflict sends a signal back to President Putin's quote-unquote electorate in Russia. I think President Putin's number one objective in everything is twofold. It's to stay in power and to get even richer. And so by restoring a sense that Russia is grand and it is a real player in the Middle East, again, uh, that helps. That helps Putin uh, uh, reinforce the message he, he has passed on to the Russian nationalists and even non-nationalists when Russia uh, invaded Ukraine and annexed Crimea that uh, Russia matters. And this previously Russian territory of Crimea is back because we are so strong and we can project our influence and power in places like Syria or, or Libya for that matter. This, the second reason why the, the, this military power projection matters, uh, as, I, as I alluded to, is that it helps build Putin's prestige so he can get wealthier and wealthier. So that gets to your second question. Um, there's so much money in Cyprus because there's so much Russian money that needs to be laundered. It needs to be parked somewhere. Uh, and as, as somebody in the Caspian region once said to me, it's not easy to launder a billion dollars. You know, it takes a lot of work, a lot of cleverness, a lot of uh, mechanisms. Uh, and so when I was when I was still uh, at the in the U.S. government at the State Department, uh, we talked a lot, a lot to our Cypriot counterparts about the need to clean up money laundering. And I must say, they didn't deny it was happening. <laughs> they simply said, yeah, we're working on it and it's not as bad as it used to be. Um, so you come back to or come back to the, um, the European Union's uh, financial rescue package for Cyprus a few years ago. Uh, you may recall that one stipulation was that there was a threshold uh, of uh, uh, monetary holdings in Cypriot banks uh, that could not be recovered by the largest deposit holders in Cypriot banks uh, because the Greek Cypriot authorities and the European Union uh, wanted to make sure that the smaller, normal Greek Cypriot depositors, the, 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 oh, the mom and pops, the normal business people, uh, would be able to recover their money uh, and, and not be crowded out by the Russians and others who were dumping millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars and euros in Greek Cypriot banks. So why then? Your original question was, why is there so much Russian money there? And the answer is because it's tolerated. Um, you know, oversight by not only by the Greek Cypriot government, but by the European Union of, of Greek Cypriot banks has been terrible. And, and, and the result was a total collapse of the Greek Cypriot banking system in the midst of the financial crisis. Um, and it's not like the situation is much better on the Turkish Cypriot side. I mean, things happen on the Turkish Cypriot side uh, that, that can't happen in other places, certainly not in the EU space, because uh, the, the, you know, the Turkish Cypriot side of the island or the so-called Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus is also unregulated. As you mentioned, only one country on earth recognizes it. Nobody else has really access to it. Um, there is there is a fair amount of uh, you know holiday uh, British uh, investment you know in, in holiday homes I mean, um, but but by and large it's not a very regulated economy. So you've got a lot of casinos on the northern side of the island. Everybody knows what what that brings in terms of uh, financial non-transparency, and that sort of. Uh, echoes the financial non-transparency on the Greek Cypriot side. Now, again, the Greek Cypriot government says we're working on cleaning up uh, all that non-transparency, but there's been a lot of good reporting done in, in recent years, including by the Financial Times, showing how uh, it's <laughs> strange that some uh, Russian people have established a political party after getting Greek Cypriot passports by investing a certain amount of money. Uh, and yeah, they've, they've created their own political party and they're pulling along lots of uh, Russian investment in high-end real estate in Cyprus. And that whole issue, therefore, of the, the special investor's passport in Greek Cyprus has become also a hot political issue and something that the EU, I think, has been pushing to eliminate as well to make it more difficult for, in particular, Russian money uh, surreptitiously to find a home uh, in Cyprus. Do you think tensions between Greece and Turkey are going to get better or worse over the next five to ten years? I think I think it's going to go down. All right, I, th I think there's a good prospect it will go down because 
we see, as I said, that you know, NATO and, and, and the leader of the European Union, one of the most important leaders, Angela Merkel, want to see the, the, the tensions go down. However, as we know, she, <laughs> she's not long for this political world, so she's got yeah, a little over a month left in office. But I think her successor will also most likely want to see the tensions decrease in the eastern Mediterranean. I mean, I mentioned this, this principle of solidarity of EU member states, but you know, as, as an organization, the EU does not want to push Turkey too far because of the refugee agreement of 2015 uh, that the EU signed with Turkey. As, as we know, Turkey has yeah, approximately 3.7 million Syrian refugees inside of Turkey. In total, probably about 4 million refugees, if you include Afghanis and Iraqis and others. Uh, and the European Union does not want to see uh, those refugees flowing again into Greece and the EU space, as was happening a few years ago. They want to see Turkey uh, keep on enforcing uh, restrictions uh, on migration. Um, and so I think as, as an organization overall, uh, there's only a certain amount of tolerance of the European Union for the Greek Cypriot and Greek uh, approaches to uh, provoking Turkey. Uh, but by the same token, there's very little tolerance among the European Union member states as a whole or the European Commission or Council to actions that they see as provocations by Turkey. Turkey does not want to be isolated in the eastern Mediterranean. Turkey wants to diversify its supplies of natural gas. They want eastern Mediterranean gas to flow into Turkey and then onward through Turkey into the EU space so that Turkey can become a transit hub for natural gas, deliveries to Europe, and maybe even a trading hub where you can actually have uh, uh, transactions uh, and trades going on in Turkey as happened in Northern Europe at a number of hubs, whether it be in the UK or the Netherlands or France or Germany or Austria. Um, so to realize that vision, um, tensions over uh, Eastern Mediterranean resources uh, and, and boundaries need to decrease. That all said, I mean, you wouldn't ask the question if it wasn't a difficult one to answer. And <laughs> the Eastern Mediterranean is so politically volatile with Syria with Lebanon, as we speak, going through yet another political crisis on the one-year anniversary of, you know, the one of the largest explo non-nuclear explosions in history, uh, with Israel, Israel-Palestine, uh, and Egypt and its relations with Turkey, which are so complicated, and then efforts by, by Greece to try to uh, bypass Turkey on natural gas uh, pipelines. Uh, by forming a, 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 a separate forum with the Greek Cypriots, with Israel, with Egypt, and, and, and to build a pipeline uh, from Israel to Cyprus to the Greece mainland that totally bypasses Turkey. So there are a, a lot of destabilizing factors in the Eastern Mediterranean. But my bottom line is, it's really in everyone's interests of, of whom we talked about, the Turks, the Greek Cypriots, the Greeks, the European Union, and NATO, to see tensions decrease. The wild cards are what's going to happen ultimately in Syria, how will the Russians behave, and how will the Iranians behave as well in stirring the pot together uh, with Israel, whether it be in Syria or, or in Lebanon. The EEZ issue goes far beyond just maritime routes, with huge gas and oil deposits being discovered in the eastern Mediterranean. But being the eastern Mediterranean, it isn't just the Greeks and Turks involved now. On this front, Israel, Lebanon, Syria, Egypt, and Libya all want a piece of the pie. But how will that pie be divided? Who gets the large shares? And who will get the crumbs will be decided by a few lines on the map. And to talk more about that, we turn to our final guest. Part 4. Seeking Aphrodite's Blessing People think about the East Mediterranean, they think about Greece and Turkey and NATO, but there's a lot more to it than that. You have other players there. You have uh, certainly Israel, you have Cyprus, you have Egypt, and you're talking about the extended Mediterranean, and you're not talking merely about the uh, militarized hostilities between uh, Greece and Turkey. You've got Lebanon, which is a player now. You've got uh, more uh, more players than you can catch. So there's there's no balance. It's changing all the time. It's like a ball bearing rolling around this you know surface that's not uniform and 
continually rotating. It's, 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 you could say it's like a trampoline. It's changing all the time, depending upon which angle you want to take. Robert M. Cutler is a fellow at NATO Canada and the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, specializing in the energy trade in the Middle East and Europe. We're very happy to have Robert back on the show today. Yeah, the, uh, the Aphrodite gas field, uh, which gets a lot of attention, isn't the only game in town. It became uh, of interest when uh, there was a decrease of military tension in the region. There had never been a great deal of uh, oil and gas exploration because of the multipolar tension between Greece and Turkey, between Israel and Egypt, between Israel and Lebanon, between Cyprus and Turkey, and so on. But that changed uh, in the first decade of the century, and some explorations began. And in fact, uh, the first strikes that were found, uh, mainly of, of offshore gas, were uh, Israeli offshore gas fields. There was uh, what's called the Tamar field in 2009, which was found by a consortium of American and Israeli companies. Then the Leviathan field, which is the biggest one, 2010, not far from the Tamar field. And then in 2011, the Aphrodite field was found uh, further west of the Leviathan in Cyprus's uh, uh, economic zone. Exclusive Economic Zone, EEZ. Uh, and in fact, uh, the uh, in all three cases, the lead company was uh, a Houston-based uh, production company called Noble Energy. Then in 2013, another field was discovered, uh, Tamar Southwest in the Israeli offshore. There are still others more than that beyond uh, that uh, are not of direct interest to uh, our discussion about Cyprus. The main thing to understand about the Aphrodite field is that it and the Levian, Leviathan field are basically joined. Uh, and so when Cyprus wanted to develop the Aphrodite field, there wasn't enough gas there for them to do that uh, on a commercial, that is to say, profit-making basis. Uh, so then they had to find an arrangement the Aphrodite gas field sits across a few nations' territorial claims, including Cyprus. But with so many contentious nations in the mix here, how are they proposing to divvy up the gas field? The Aphrodite field is to the south and slightly to the west, to the south of, 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 this, of the island of Cyprus. And uh, as you know, the uh, Turkish-occupied uh, part of the island is in the northeast, and so when in the past several years, Turkey has sent out exploration vessels uh, to, to sound their, uh, it, it's, to, to, to sound the depths, uh, this has been uh, not on the Aphrodite side of the island, although Turkey would like to claim, because Turkey doesn't recognize uh, Cyprus, uh, the Republic of Cyprus, so they have formally uh, claims put forward claims uh, to rights to uh, subsea resources uh, all around the island of Cyprus, not just on the northeast end of it. And what are your thoughts on the proposal for an East Med pipeline to help gas and oil from these fields get into the European markets? First thing has to be said is that's never going to be built and everyone knows it's never going to be built. And I'll tell you why. Uh, and I'll also tell you why Nevertheless, people continue to talk about it. Uh, the East Med pipeline uh, was conceived uh, to uh, take up uh, Israeli uh, resources from the Leviathan, uh, head towards Cyprus, picking up Aphrodite, and then reach mainland Greece by way of the island of Crete. Now, this track would make the pipeline the longest subsea oil or gas pipeline ever constructed and the deepest ever constructed, 1,200 kilometers or more. Uh, and the head of the DG, that's the Directorate General for Energy of the European Commission, uh, which is continually, continually, continually uh, shelling out $100 million every so often for, 
for studies, feasibility studies, nothing for development, nothing for planning, but everything for feasibility studies. The, the head of the, of, the, of the DG Energy in the European Commission has said in public that, we, that they don't expect it ever to be built. They're doing this only for political purposes because Cyprus, of course, and Greece are members of the European Union. And the main concern has been uh, to get uh, Cyprus to be self-sufficient in energy generation. I mean, sorry, in electricity generation. And one of the ideas was that the gas from their offshore Aphrodite field could be used onshore in order to generate energy. Uh, that, again, was not commercially viable. And they found other solutions with which they are going forward. And what about the other Eastern Mediterranean pipeline proposal, the one that goes from Turkey to Libya? How likely is that project to go ahead? Again, who's going to build it? Who's going to ensure the risks? It doesn't look like in the cards. The Italians are the big players in Libyan energy. Uh, the Turks are important because the coast of Libya was part of the Ottoman Empire. And many of the political figures in Libya today who are linked with the uh, government, who are cooperating with the government in Ankara, are in fact of Turkish origin, if you look back far enough. So there's that coming into play. But as for a pipeline, again, there's too much else going on. Even if for the East Med pipeline, was commercially viable. There are a lot of other pipelines that are even more commercially viable with less risk. And these multinationals, you know, they have a whole portfolios of possibilities and they pick the best chances. And these are not the best chances. We talked about it with our previous guest, but the extension of the Greek EEC will be a huge deal for Turkey. The Greeks have already extended their claim in the Ionian Sea between Greece and Italy, but are yet to implement the extension in the Aegean between Greece and Turkey. If we assume the Republic of Cyprus would follow Greece if they were to trigger their extension, what would this mean for the region? How detrimental would it be for Turkey? Well, now we get into some of the international law uh, reasoning, uh, which may strike some people as angels dancing on the head of a pin, but it's nevertheless at least a little bit interesting, and it helps to frame some of the other arguments that are made. So it might be worthwhile to just say a few words about it. Uh, the first is uh, that, as you know, there are Greek islands right near the Turkish coast, the most well-known is Castellarizzo, uh, a couple of kilometers that Greece wants to claim 200, wants to claim a continental shelf for it. Um, that's not in line with the law of the sea treaty. The, on, the, on the exponents of the Greek position or the Cypriot position, uh, they will sometimes I'm say, well, let's take it to the International Court of Justice, because actually, you know, the International Court of Justice is, is the one that just rules on these things. It's the only court available for doing that in The Hague, not to be confused with the International Criminal Court also in The Hague. Even if Turkey were to say that we will, that they would accept ICJ jurisdiction in the sole case of adjudicating their maritime sectors in Cyprus, that wouldn't fly because in Cyprus's unilateral declaration, they said that they would accept mandatory jurisdiction on condition that the other party accepts mandatory jurisdiction in every case and not in any single one case. So Turkey is excluded. There's no way to resolve that through the ICJ, uh, which means that, um, again, a lot of the international law, it's like, it's like you know, in the Middle Ages, as armies uh, used to fight only like once, one day a year, and everything else was strategic positioning and fainting and so on. This is what a lot of this international law stuff is. But it's important uh, because it frames a lot of it. Anyway, the Greek assertion of exclusive economic zone going up to the coastline, nearly the coastline of Turkey because of these islands that are Greek that are not far from the Turkish coast, that does not conform with the law of the sea treaty. And again, that's something that uh, either should be will be adjudicated before the fact, 
or it will remain a no man's land for the foreseeable future, or it will be decided by force on the ground or in the sea, and then international law will catch up with the realities established by real politique and will find norms and reasons to justify them, which is a lot of the time, but not all the time, uh, how international law works. And do you expect this dispute to be solved on the battlefield? Well, I don't expect that it'll be resolved by conflict because NATO is a also between Greece and Turkey, it's a conflict management mechanism, so to speak. Um, uh, and you're right that they do cooperate. And indeed, uh, bilateral relations between the two countries have improved immensely in the last 10 to 20 years. Uh, this is this is clear. And the uh, Southern Gas Corridor, uh, which is a pipeline uh, that starts in Baku, Azerbaijan, goes through Georgia, go, and turns south into eastern Turkey, goes all the way across Turkey uh, to the Turkish Straits, then crosses into Greece, where, uh, and then it goes across Greece, and uh, and and eventually winds up in Italy through the uh, under the Adriatic Sea. Uh, with the, the, the TAP, the Trans-Adriatic Pipeline. I mean, this is clear. This is co they, they've cooperated on this and on other things. So, um, so I would be very surprised if it came to blows. There's every reason for the United States to interpose the Sixth Fleet in order to see that it doesn't. And what do you think the final outcome of this field will be? Can this issue be resolved easily? Well, the tension's not going to decrease, but I would be surprised if it breaks out into overt hostilities. Erdogan recently, very recently visited Northern Cyprus, and uh, it's clear now, although lots of people are not talking about it because they don't want to admit it, and it's unfortunate, uh, that uh, it's been almost 50 years since Cyprus was divided in 1974. Uh, that's two generations. Now, one of the interesting things I mentioned about Cyprus is that it used to be the case, uh, just as in Belgium, Walloons and the Flemish, the French-speaking and the Dutch-speaking Belgians, have a lot more in common sociologically, culturally, politically, their general social attitudes in common between themselves than the than the French-speaking Walloons have with the French or the Dutch or that the Dutch-speaking Flemish have with the Dutch. That used to be the case on Cyprus. That the Greek Cypriots and the Turkish Cypriots had much more in common between them than the Greek Cypriots had with the mainland Greeks or that the Turkish Cypriots had with the mainland Turks. That's changed, and it's no longer the case, not least, not only, but not least, because over the last 50 years, many poor Anatol peasants from the Anatolian Peninsula have uh, gone to live in northern Cyprus. And so doing, they've changed the political culture of, uh, of the Turkish sector. Uh, and uh, the result of this is that when Erdogan uh, was just in, uh, in in northern Cyprus, and and there were indications of this in the Turkish press in the months months leading up, that uh, the Turkish government no longer endorses a one state settlement. They, they they say the two state settlement, the two state resolution, a Greek Cypriot state and a Turkish uh, Cypriot state. Greece and Turkey have been at each other's throats now for longer than anyone can remember. And it's no coincidence that these two are some of the highest military spending countries in the alliance, both saber-rattling with one another, whilst both being a part of NATO. No one is even 100% certain of what to do if two NATO nations engage in full-scale conflict. It really is a mess. So rather than force NATO to make that decision, the two battle with proxies over Cyprus. But how can you reduce the tension on the island and the chance of conflict? A one-state solution would simply give Greece the control, 
Greek Cypriots make up the majority of the island's population, and if they come into power, there can be no guarantee there will be no reprisals against a community that they've been tussling with for 60 years. And that doesn't make Turkey very comfortable. A two-state solution, though, is effectively creating another Crimea problem, where the Turks can parachute and protect in any Turkic communities around the area, opening the door for Turkey to create puppet states throughout the Middle East and Central Asia. And we all know the EU would never make this easy either, noting their adversity to breakaway states like Catalonia, Basque, Scotland, or Kosovo. It's not even easy to crack down on crime on the island of Cyprus, as the money being poured in from Russian oligarchs looking to clean their money is more than enough to break and bend the rules to favour the oligarchs. And it's money that Cyprus desperately needs. The British also seem somewhat comfortable with the situation as it is, the side effect of the conflict being that they have well-functioning bases right near some of the world's geopolitical hotspots like Syria, Lebanon and Israel, whilst also gaining the ability to try and act as the power broker between Greece and Turkey. Even though a lot of this dispute, particularly around the EEZs, was started by the British and the French, who gave Greece the disputed islands in the Aegean in the first place after the First World War. Both sides have been very comfortable with the status quo for a long time now, but things may begin to change with Turkey's expansion to the Middle East and new gas and oil fields on the cards in the surrounding waters. Where the lines get drawn on the map, though, could mean big business for the winning side. But until then, the island remains as broken as a Greek plate. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. It's been another big month here at The Red Line, with us starting to prepare and to do additional live streams, new reports, and bring you even more expert analysis on our website. We always try and bring you more and more and answer all the geopolitical questions you might have. And if you want to check out those for yourself, you can visit our website at www.theredlinepodcast.com. Or you can find us on Twitter, Reddit, Facebook, Instagram, Discord, and from this week, TikTok on the handle at the Pod. Or if you want to find me on Twitter, you can find me on the handle MikeHilliardOz, Oz is in Australia. As a small token of appreciation, we're also going to begin reading out our latest Patreon's name, so the person who signed up closest to the time of recording. So a big thanks goes out to Aditya Chug, who is our latest Patreon. This show would not be possible without the support of our amazing Patreons, who donate a small amount of money each week to help us keep this show going. Our Patreons who join in on games, nights, and live Q&As, also get extra materials from the show, and our Patreon's donations 100% go back into the program, helping us pay for staff, hosting, websites, and lawyers that are essential for running a show like this. I cannot thank our Patreons nearly enough for their support, and if you feel like you can spare a couple of dollars a week, the team here would greatly appreciate it. So this episode's for you, Aditya. As usual, here are our three book recommendations if you want to take this subject further. The first is The Cypress Problem by friend of the show, James Kerr Lindsay. James is one of my favorite geopolitical analysts, and himself, he runs a great show as well. Hopefully, we'll be having him on the red line sometime soon. The second is Cyprus and the Politics of Memory by Rebecca Bryant for an overall strategic outlook on the island's position. And the third is Mokarius by Dimitrios Assos. Mokarius is incredibly important to this story, and we really just didn't get enough time to go into why he is so important. We could have done a whole hour just focusing on Mokarius and the US intervention against him. But if you want an understanding of the birth of the Cypriot nation, you really should be reading about Macarius. And this is a great book to do that. I want to thank our guests as well this week, Madalena Vacari, Andreas Theophanis, Matthew Breiser, and Robert Cutler. All of you were amazing to work with on this piece, and I'm sure it won't be the last time we work together. I also want to thank my staff, Owen Swift, the producer, Daniela Zavella and Perry Grace, the research assistants and writers, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, and Nick Munch, our field correspondent. I am incredibly proud of this team, and we keep kicking goal after goal. The last thanks goes out to you for tuning into the show. We are looking like this month may once again beat the record for most streams in a month, which is crazy because I keep thinking every single month we do it is just a fluke in the statistics. It is just incredible. And I can't begin to thank each and every one of you enough for all the support you've shown us. Sharing the show with your friends and colleagues really has made the difference here. And I feel incredibly lucky to have the support we have. So once again, thank you. The show will be back in another fortnight with another international episode. But until then, thank you and good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Redline podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own.
For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com.